everybody. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm a member here at Doxology, and I'll be reading today's scripture passage. Uh, today we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. I'll take my mask off, sorry. Um, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn your uh, Bible to the, that passage. Uh, if not, we do have Bibles in the front lobby. That is yours to take. It's our gift to you. Uh, also, you can look it up on your phone or online if you're at home. Uh, once again, we are in uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. At this word, and this word, is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. So I have a gift for you this evening, and that is I am not preaching. Um, so Andrew Workman's preaching for us today. Uh, if you don't know him, he and his wife, Lisa, have led a community group at our church for a while now. And, elder, and uh, Andrew is in the elder process. And so uh, two reasons why he's preaching today. One, it's, it's good for you guys in our church to hear from a diverse set of voices, so voices that aren't just mine. And so you'll be blessed in that way, just hearing from how God has formed Andrew specifically. Uh, but also number two, one of the, the main charges to elders in the church is to preach and teach the word and to help grow the church in that way. And so this is one way that Andrew gets to develop that gift on his way to becoming an installed elder at this church. And so, uh, Andrew, I'll just go ahead and pray over for you sure. and hand it over. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Lord, I thank you for Andrew and um, just his heart for this church family and you know, how much of his heart he put into preparing this sermon for our church, even amid a busy work season and amid preparing for his first child. And so thank you for your goodness in his life and for uh, how much he cares about Jesus and each of us. So pray that we will be changed as a result of hearing you speak through him tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. To, uh, to give you a window into what I'm feeling right now, it's like when your dad takes off the training wheels and just pushes you down the hill. It's like, have fun. But thanks to you for that. Um, how is everyone tonight? Good? Awesome. Well, it looks a lot different this time than the last time I preached. If you recall, my last sermon was uh, filmed from my living room with an audience of Lisa and a neighbor dog peering across from me from the window of our neighbors. And I remember thinking after I filmed that, I was like, I don't know what my next sermon is going to look like. Like, in this was back when I didn't think Steve was going to truly force me to do another sermon before my child was born. <laughs> that was a, far too optimistic on my end, and I really should have known better. So, <laughs> but I didn't know if I was going to be with you guys in person, and I miss you all a lot more than I thought I was going to when I filmed it. 
So it's really cool to be here in person on the night of a baptism, no less, and on the night of a member gathering um, where we can come together as a corporate body and worship God and look at his word together and celebrate the things that he's doing in people's lives. So to get into it, we're obviously continuing on with our sermon series in 1 Peter where Peter is writing to churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And as we've been talking about, these churches have been experiencing a lot of the things that the American church is currently going through right now, namely how to walk in light of the gospel in a society that, at best, frowns upon its beliefs and, at worst, subjects them to a form of persecution. And these churches consisted of a beautiful mishmash of ethnicities, social castes, and backgrounds, which was a very alien concept back then to everyone's neighbors, co-workers, or family members who weren't believers. And perhaps unsurprisingly, when you bring together, when a new religious movement like this one was, brought together people from these different backgrounds and from this society that was predicated upon prejudice and segregation, you're going to have some problems inside the church. There's no other way around it. And that's what this text is about. Peter is instructing Christians in the importance of love between brothers and sisters and how it can happen in a diverse church. So to be completely honest with you guys, when I first read this text, I was not very convicted at all. I was like, all right, I'm supposed to love people inside the church. Cool. Got it. It's nothing I haven't heard before. I can't really say. At least I didn't think I struggled with it. And there wasn't that like gut punch quality to it. But, and I think that's because the, in my mind, I traded love and loving people inside the church and conflated it with things like tolerating other people, a surface level liking of other people, and just like a lack of observable conflict inside the church. And I do genuinely like everyone in this room, praise God. But does that mean I'm obeying what God is calling me to do and exhibiting the kind of love that Peter's describing here? And as I studied the passage more and more, I found myself repenting more and more. So we'll look at the the text through three points that follow the flow of the text. So first, we'll look at Peter's command to love. Second, we'll look at how we're able to love. And third how we sustain that love over the course of our lives. So first, how we're able to, sorry, first, the command to love, second, how we're able to love, and third, how we sustain that love. So the command to love occurs in the first couple of verses. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So we see here plainly that God's command is for people within the church to sincerely and earnestly love one another from a pure heart. And that command is made possible by two causal phrases in these verses. So we are to love because, one, our lives have been purified by our obedience to the truth. And that word purified is Old Testament language for belonging to God or being set apart for the purposes of God. And two... Because we have been born again with an eternal nature, and love is the essence of that nature. So Peter's reminding us that we've been adopted into a family characterized by the gracious love of our Father. And again, when set within the context of who Peter is writing to, this was a radical command bordering on the absurd. 
And it sadly is just as countercultural today as it was 2,000 years ago. So as I mentioned earlier, I, don't, I would venture to guess that most of us in this room don't really consider a lack of love for our Christian brothers and sisters to be a blind spot or a sinful area of our lives that we're missing. But it's actually quite easy for division to take hold in a church. And Steve is going to have to clean up this mess, but I can cause it in two words. Maryland drivers. <laughs> now... Those of you from Virginia are saying, Lord, it is about time we have addressed this pestilence upon our land. May your justice be swift. And the people from Maryland in the room are like, oh, what's, what stereotype are you referring to? Please, tell me more, Andrew. And meanwhile, everyone here from D.C. can continue to clutch your Metro cards and feel superior to everyone else. Um, I'll, I'll note that I'm a neutral party in this. I'm from Pennsylvania, so I would never seek to sow such division, but sorry, Steve. Um, obviously, that's a silly example, and yet, if we're honest with ourselves and take stock of our church lives and relationships, can we really say we're doing what God is asking us to do here? I would guess probably not. So we have to ask ourselves, where is that disconnect coming from? And why is this so hard to do and so easy to be complacent in? I think it's mostly because of two reasons. So first, in our hearts and minds, we've exchanged true love for mere tolerance and, again, lack of observable conflict. And second, perhaps most importantly, we grossly underestimate how important this issue is to God. So... Your next question should be, okay, how important is this to God? Jesus put it this way. In John chapter 13, he gives the world permission to judge the church based off of how we treat each other inside the church. And in John chapter 17, he prayed for his people to be one, even as he and the Father are one. That should floor us. So not only does the world have authority to judge us based off of how you and I treat one another, but that one of Jesus' deepest desires of his heart is for us, as in the people in this room, to be so unified that it reflects the Son and the Father. And if that doesn't get your attention, your priorities are misplaced. Elsewhere in Romans 12, we see that Paul says that the mark of a true Christian is loving one another with a genuine love and brotherly affection. So this is something that God cares a great deal about and is very explicit in his call. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, unless the world sees us getting along inside the church and between churches, why won't they just think we're like any other cultural or political group? Why would we be any different? See, we know that the church and God's family is a divine makeup of all races, cultures, and backgrounds. There's no worldly reason why the group of people in this room today should not only get along, but love and serve one another with an affection and sincerity that defies convention. So let's talk about perhaps the most common obstacle in church relationships and has been for thousands of years and probably will for uh, however long this world continues to exist until Christ returns. So there exists a general lack of grace in our relationships, which that unfortunately says something about our relationship with God because how we treat one another 
is usually correlated with what you believe about God's heart towards you. And this lack of grace is usually characterized by the spirit of vindictiveness, of half-forgiveness, and a sense of superiority. It could be anything from a personality that rubs you the wrong way, um, differing political opinions, or even a sin that someone struggles with. And when we interact with these people, our hearts are held captive by this prideful sense of superiority. And we don't allow our hearts to be softened towards them and exhibit the love of our gracious Savior. I really like this this Tim Keller quote. Um, We tend to demonize the opposite group of people or thing of what we idolize. So I'll read that again. We tend to demonize the opposite group of people or thing of what we idolize. And here's the problem with that, outside of obviously being a sin. So not only does it go against God's command to love earnestly and sincerely, but the second you begin to view someone through the lens of a sin, a disagreement, or character flaw, that is the second that relationship begins to slip into a destructive pattern of judgment, suspicion, and lack of grace. This is why so many family members are estranged from one another. It's when we're unable to view someone through any lens but their sin, opinions, or personality differences, we're ultimately unable to see Christ in them, and we will treat them as inferior and undesirable instead of the image bearers that they are. So again, take a step back and think of who's writing this. Peter, of all people. If you recall, there is a pretty big instance of Peter messing up that Christ could have viewed him through for the rest of eternity. Just imagine if you or I were betrayed in in a similar manner, right? It would inevitably color every interaction we would ever have with that person. And we'd view them as unredeemable and with suspicion, never loving them as we are called to because we don't truly believe that they could be forgiven or be capable of change. And we know that on their own, they're not. So now we're at the point of questioning if God can not only forgive them, but change them as well. And perhaps the first part of that we can jive with, right? Because intellectually, we like the fact that we like the idea that God can uh, forgive anyone for anything, right? But it's the second part we usually have trouble with because that change might require something of us. And almost every time, it reveals we were walking in bitterness and contempt contempt rather than gracious love and brotherly affection. And if it didn't have anything to do with sin, but rather it's personality or opinion-driven, then once again, I'll ask, what does the lens through which you view that person reveal about what you truly believe God's heart is towards you? Because if we truly believed God's love for us is really without condition or pretense, would we be acting or feeling this way towards our brothers and sisters? And remember what Peter says in this passage, our actions and relationships must be ones of genuine love and affection that flow out of us because our hearts have been captured and changed by the redeeming, all-encompassing love of Christ. So let's go over some concrete ways to love each other in the church. So 
The first is the found basic foundation of any relationship. It's time. So do you make it a point to spend time with Christians outside of Sundays? And no, I know what you're thinking. Tuesdays do not count. As much as I love seeing you guys on Tuesdays, it does not count. Though very important, it doesn't count. Um, also, you will get more out of Sundays and Tuesdays if you do spend time with Christians outside of those days. You guys know this, but knowing someone is an integral part of loving them. Because how else will we know someone if we don't spend time with them? So second is compassion or suffering with, with others. So do you make it a point to reach out to those who are suffering? Would you even know if the person sitting in front of you, in the pew in front of you, is suffering right now? Think of Christ's heart towards those who are in pain, and we must ask him to mold our hearts after his. Third is prayer. So we must be in constant prayer for our brothers and sisters and play an active role in asking God to move in each other's life. I'll add a force to this list something that feels very relevant right now. Um, Be very, very careful about who you allow to shape and influence your worldview. Because whether it's about politics or pop culture or even theology, who we read, listen to, or watch will inevitably shape our thinking and attitudes. So some questions that I think are useful to ask Does the content I'm consuming reflect the heart of Christ in its tone, words, and calls to action? And how does the author or speaker talk about those who disagree with them? And is it in a way that reflects the grace and love of our Savior? Because you would be surprised, or maybe you you wouldn't be surprised, at how easily divisive rhetoric, contempt, and vindictiveness can creep into our thinking through what we watch or consume, and thus inhibit our ability to love some of our brothers and sisters. I want us to be really vigilant about this, especially at this moment in history and in this place. So now that we've gone through the command to love, maybe you've gone from like, "Mm, I don't know, this, this doesn't really bother me, or it just doesn't really hit me in a convicting way, to, okay, maybe I do have a blind spot, here, or perhaps have a sinful area of my life here, how am I supposed to even do this? So that brings us to the second point, which is how we're able to love. So after his command to love, Peter does something that is a bit odd at first. He, uh, he pivots to an Old Testament quote from Isaiah that speaks to the transience of worldly life and the eternal strength of the gospel. But this is actually just the encouragement we need to love, one, to love others with grace, so the context of this passage in Isaiah is almost identical to the context that Peter is writing to. So it's a proclamation of hope and deliverance to a discouraged people exiled in the diaspora. So they are outnumbered in their communities and dealing with the perishability of mortal things versus the incorruptibility of Christian inheritance. And so Peter does two things here. So first, he points to the permanent, eternal nature of the kingdom of God as our new reality. So he's telling these diverse fledgling churches that there's no more room for historical feuds, for materialism, for grudges in their new family whose timeline and and context is now eternity. So 
kind of paradoxically, there's no time to be caught up in passions or pettiness or lukewarm complacency of the world around us when we are called to an eternal destiny of sacrificial love that comes from the God that made us. I think we'll find that our relationships with our brothers and sisters will look much different once viewed through the lens of spending eternity with our Savior. And so having this eternal perspective therefore frees us from the chains that say we always need to have the moral high ground in a relationship. Or it frees us from the chains that say we need to use our weekends or weeknights for ourselves rather than spending time with our Christian brothers and sisters. So the second thing Peter does here is he not only reframes our perspective, but he tells us we have actual power for living this way. So the seed of God's word through which we've been born again is living and abiding word. So it's not dead or perishing. So the very breath and power of God doesn't only save us in the past or will not will only save us in the future, but it's the thing that's sustaining us now and today and enables us to do what would otherwise be impossible. So the word is just as active and relevant as it was 2,000 years ago, and it's only by remaining and abiding in it will we know who redeemed us. And it's only by remaining and abiding in that word will we be able to rely daily on its power. So we've looked at the command to love and how we're able to love. Um, Let's see what Peter has to say about sustaining this love because the command to love within our church sounds fine and good in a vacuum, right? But when you realize this is meant to be thrown up against the context of eternity in our lifetime and to be a rhythm week after week, month after month, year after year, it sounds a lot more daunting and exhausting, frankly. That's a lot of relationships that need to go well. So how is that even possible? We get that answer in the beginning of chapter 2. So Peter says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So pretty plainly, Peter's saying that the thing that will sustain and grow our love is pure spiritual milk. So he's not talking about milk in the way that Paul uses it, where milk references elementary teaching that new believers needed to receive, um, but rather the way that Peter uses it is in reference to a milk's purity and a newborn's ravenous need for it in order to survive. So generally speaking, theologians interpret spiritual milk to refer to the word of God and his grace. So think about what that means. Peter's saying that the thing that we should be craving is the same word through which we were born again. And it is through this milk that we grow away from the sins that he lists in the previous verses. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. All sins, you'll note, that ruin relationships. And key to this process is what he ends the passage with. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So unless we truly experience the grace of God, we're not going to long for that, which didn't change us. Or put another way, which you've probably heard before, Christ will not taste sweet to us until sin tastes bitter. So when we savor pure spiritual milk, we lose our taste for worldly things that could never hope to satisfy us. And tasting tasting it makes us long for it more and more. And this is the process that fuels our spiritual growth as Christians. 
And furthermore, remember what passage Peter just referenced. So an excerpt from Isaiah placing these commands in the context of eternity. So as such, we will not be satisfied with the temporary milk of this world once we have the full view of eternity. We will only want the milk that is permanent and truly nourishing. Unfortunately, as many of us know, we are so prone to dilute the message of his grace by adding that which is perishable to the relationship and give ourselves over to the milk of this world. So you'll notice that Peter uses the adjective unadulterated in some translations or pure here when describing the spiritual milk that we are to be clinging to. And in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon to dilute the milk by adding water or another liquid to it. And obviously, the result was a weaker product that was impure. So Peter knows our natural inclination is to dilute and distort the word of God. And as we sully the imperishable with that which is perishable, we suddenly find ourselves no longer wanting only pure milk. Instead, we find ourselves craving the spectacular or craving our own successes or our own comforts, all at the behest of God's word and what he calls us to do. Now, that brings up a prickly question, which is, does the word of God satisfy you? Does the word of God satisfy you? So... Titus says yes. I don't know what you guys say. Uh, Everything else could be taken away. Your career, a loved one, or another relationship, or your home. But still you could say that the pure spiritual milk of God is all you need. I think the answer to that question for many of us is usually no. And the way how that so often manifests itself in our lives is wanting the blessings that come from following the word of God but only if we get to experience the perishable things of this world. So our answer to the question, does God satisfy us, usually ends up with a yes that is contingent on getting satisfaction from other areas of our lives, usually the areas that we think we have control over. But focusing on the perishable things hinders our ability to enjoy and invest in the imperishable, namely loving one another earnestly out of a sincere heart. Remember, these, these relationships inside the church and the church is eternal. I'm not going away. I'm sorry. Our timeline is eternity. And I mentioned earlier that unless we truly experience the grace of God, we will not long for it with hunger and urgency. So we will not be able to sustain loving others unless we are continually captivated by the work of Christ and allow it to daily transform us. So thankfully, that work in transformation is not up to us because the same God who initiated our salvation also initiates our growth and sanctification. Praise God. Remember in verse 2, it says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So that verb in you may grow up is passive in the original Greek and can be translated as you may be caused to grow up. So that agent causing that growth and sanctification is not you. It could never be you. It's the Holy Spirit. 
working within us and causing us to grow in grace and love towards others. I think we all know deep down that we could never sustain loving one another over the course of a lifetime by ourselves. But the good news is the the Holy Spirit can and will as long as we are fed and daily transformed from the pure milk of God's word and his grace. So what is at the heart of the pure milk of God's word? It's Christ himself. He's the word of God who loved you and continues to love you with an earnest, sincere love. And this love is not diluted. It doesn't hold back. And Christ is not stingy or cautious with how much he opens his heart and pours out his love upon you. And he was nailed to a cross for our sins and rose from the grave so we can be united with a God who is absolutely crazy about us. And when we grasp this anew each day, we can't help but long for him who first longed for us. And this process is cyclical, and like I said before, this process is what fuels our growth and sanctification. So once you get to know your Savior and his word, you'll long for it more and more. And as you act on that hunger, you're immersed more fully in his love. And as you're immersed in his love, it will become second nature to love those in the church with the same heart as our Savior loves you. In reality, it will be our true nature, the one that God designed us for. So let let us love each other with the love that our Savior loves us, without condition, pretense, or manipulation, overflowing with grace and gratitude. And let us be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, not by ourselves, not by our works, but by the Spirit, and grow in faith together as the Church of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that, um, that we can be together, Lord. Um, God, I ask that you would bless each person here tonight and those watching online, Lord. I ask, God, that you would continue to convict us and help us to love one another um, as it is so clearly one of your deepest desires, Lord. Um, we thank you that the way that we love is through watching you and, and being transformed by your love, Lord. Um, I ask God that you would um, continue to help us mold our hearts after you and to exhibit the love that you showed us towards one another. Thank you for your goodness and your grace and what you've done for us on the cross. In your name, amen.